Hi, and welcome to Episode 3 of the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler, business divorce lawyer and partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City. In this episode, I interview Peter Mulk, a rising young star in legal academia who is assistant professor of law at Willamette University College of Law in beautiful Salem, Oregon. Our topic, how do LLC owners contract around default statutory protection, which also happens to be the title of Peter's forthcoming article in the Journal of Corporation Law, published by the University of Iowa College of Law. Peter's groundbreaking article caught my eye because it asks and attempts to answer, based on empirical evidence, a very important question about whether the freedom of contract encouraged by the default rule scheme of the LLC laws is being used as theory would predict to promote economic efficiency and to craft more efficient owner protections. In fact, the principal finding of Peter's study is that LLCs with more vulnerable owners adopt significantly fewer owner safeguards, suggesting that contractual freedom may be used more for opportunism by LLC controllers, not efficiency. What I love about Professor Mulk's study is how it tests theory with the reality of what is actually going on in the world of LLC operating agreements. He does this by examining close to 300 operating agreements of LLCs involved in litigated cases, mostly in Delaware but also in New York, looking for provisions that either weaken or strengthen owner protections granted by the statutory default rules. The patterns his study finds have a direct impact on business divorce practitioners like myself and also should influence choice of entity decisions and counseling by practitioners involved in entity formation. At Willamette, Professor Mulk teaches contracts, business associations, securities regulation, and insurance. He's got a most impressive pedigree, including a law degree and master's in economics from Yale, a postgraduate judicial clerkship with senior Judge Ralph Winter of the Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, and prior to Willamette, was visiting assistant professor at the University of Illinois College of Law. He has published numerous scholarly articles and various law reviews on regulatory, insurance, and other important issues, all of which are available on his SSRN page. Peter Mulk, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. As someone who deals with client issues arising from LLC agreements, I really enjoyed reading your article on how LLC owners contract around default rules. Why did you see the need for an empirical study of LLC agreements, and is yours the first of its kind? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. And in terms of how I got interested there, so why I thought there was a need to do this study, there's been quite a bit of work about the theoretical advantages of the, particularly the contractual freedom approach to LLCs that Delaware uh, and maybe to a slightly lesser extent New York follow. Uh, and these the default approach, no mandatory protections, really helps sophisticated parties to craft optimal or efficient operating agreements. And so a lot of people are a fan of this, uh, they call it that contractarian approach. But the you look at some of the cases that get decided and there's some issues where people are surprised to find what's in their operating agreement and surprised to see that they don't have rights that they thought they did. And so the, uh, the empirical analysis here was to try and match up what theory predicts that parties will be doing, uh, match that up to how parties are actually behaving in the real world with these LLCs. And so uh, I went on from there looking at how private LLCs are acting and private ones are 
tricky a bit in terms of getting some of, of the data, but it was a hole that hasn't been filled yet. There's been a, a couple prior studies looking at publicly traded LLCs, which is a relatively small sample, uh, and a slightly larger sample where you have publicly traded companies as an owner of an LLC, but no one really looking at just some of the smaller, more everyday type of private LLCs, uh, which is what I was most interested in. I think a lot of listeners would be surprised to even know that there are publicly owned LLCs. There are. I think there's only a handful. Maybe there'll be more as, as time goes on, but corporations still are really where the publicly traded companies tend to cluster around. Mm -hmm. But the LLC agreements for public companies are not particularly relevant to the study that you undertook. Yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't sure, I guess I would say, that the agreement for a publicly traded company would match up to what private companies are doing. Publicly traded companies have their own issues, lots of small, diverse investors who maybe have some goals that they want to make sure the operating agreement protects, but those aren't necessarily the situations that parties in a, in a private company are going to face. Plus, I imagine there's not the opportunity to negotiate terms. I think that's true, yeah. The, any negotiation would be maybe at the very start before you have all the public investors buying in. Yeah, if you're buying and selling shares in a publicly traded LLC, uh, you're certainly not negotiating what, what protections you do and don't have. Uh, Peter, your study focused on LLC agreements that you found, I believe, in litigated cases in New York and Delaware. Is that right? That's right, yep. And why did you choose those two states? The biggest reason, so the study concentrates mostly on Delaware LLCs governed by Delaware law, and the reason for that choice, one of which was that Delaware cases are available and searchable on the database that I was looking within. Uh, so some of it was just driven by need to look for actual data, but Delaware, even if all the states have been available, I think Delaware and New York are the two I would have picked. Delaware, because it has the evidence, is the greatest commitment to contractual flexibility among the states for LLCs. And if one of the goals of the study is to see how are parties crafting terms of their agreements, are they looking for optimal protections or not, uh, you'd want to look at the state that allows parties the most freedom and isn't imposing mandatory terms on them. And so Delaware was uh, the, the state that epitomizes that approach. And then New York, I looked at a smaller set of agreements out of there, 50 New York and uh, 233 from Delaware. The New York ones were kind of like a foil for, for Delaware. So there's some similarity in New York's commitment to contractual freedom, although perhaps a bit less than what Delaware allows. And uh, New York was just to, to serve as kind of a reality check to see if was the Delaware results that I got relatively representative or instead is Delaware and the companies that form there doing their own thing and everyone in other states doing something different. So Delaware for the main, main source and New York is a, the reality check to compare the Delaware results to. The, the two states, from my uh, perspective, have had very different experiences with Delaware taking the lead very early on, taking that contractarian approach, whereas New York didn't really catch up with that until relatively recently when we had, I think in 2010, the first appellate decision that said that LLCs are not business corporations, they're not partnerships, and the inquiry has to be contract-centered on the LLC agreement. So 
it's only been about five years or so since the New York courts have really shifted their focus in the same direction as Delaware when it comes to LLC agreements. Yeah, that's right. And I imagine some of that could be driven by the success that they've seen Delaware has been having. And I think Delaware is, last I checked, was the state with the highest number of out-of-state LLC formations out there. Uh, and so Delaware has been pretty successful yeah. with its approach. And New York may be trying to keep some companies forming within New York and get those franchise fees rather than seeing them leave. Yeah, well, the, the, the major impediment to that happening has been the publication requirement that New York, I believe, alone among all the 50 states has requiring those forming LLCs to spend, depending what part of the state you're in, up to a couple of thousand dollars simply to do a publication notice that tells you nothing more than what you would learn if you just went online. That's right. It's a, uh, a, nice, a nice way to, to make sure that the newspapers have some business as well. Yes. What methodology did you use to find and select the LLC agreements that you used for your study. And I think you're, you, you selected a total of, I think it was 284 LLC agreements, 50 from New York and the rest from Delaware, right? Right, yeah. So I was using the uh, Bloomberg's legal database, and the nice thing about that was they link to the state docket sheets for any case that I'm pulling up. Uh, so what I was doing here, since since private companies don't need to file or generally make publicly available their operating agreements, I was looking for cases or litigation in which some party was attaching as an exhibit an operating agreement for an LLC formed within either Delaware or New York. So I was running this search. You get, of course, a lot of false positives for any search terms that you enter in. Uh, but at the end of the day, I was able to get a nice set of uh, agreements that come out of either litigation in, in New York or Delaware, uh, and they're attached as the exhibits. So getting around the problem where companies usually don't have to make these private documents available. I'm going to guess that in your search of Delaware agreements, you did not come across any legal Zoom or other commercially prepared form agreements, but maybe you did so in New York, because I've seen some number of those. Did you find any of those? I did. So there were, there was, uh, in particular, I think one in New York looks like a, it's sometimes it's hard to tell if it's originally from something like legal Zoom and the party just took the, the header and footer off. Uh, but there are some where it certainly looks like a form agreement, maybe that that particular law office follows, or maybe that they pulled off the internet and filled in the terms. So uh, New York had one where Lindsay Lohan actually was who had formed the company, and it looked like uh, you could even see where they kind of printed off a web page, and there were these weird breaks in it where uh, it wouldn't coincide if someone had actually formed this this agreement from scratch. And, Delaware actually had some of these too. So Delaware, it's not just big companies with, with wealthy owners. There's some carpet install installation companies, some lawn care providers, some family businesses in Delaware too, where yeah, it's maybe like a four-page operating agreement. It has very little information in it. And then on the other side of the extreme, you have ones that are hundreds of pages long with excruciating detail about what rights the parties have and usually about the repayment schedule is what they really seem to care about a, a lot for some of these, uh, the real estate ones in particular. Peter, well, all of the cases that you looked at and from which you pulled uh, your sample, were they all cases involving internal disputes among the members or were there instances in which it involved 
for instance, a contract dispute in which it just so happened that the LLC agreement was an exhibit and available to you? Yeah, so they're a nice mix of both. The, the second case that you mentioned is particularly helpful to see. Uh, so the concern when you're, when you're doing uh, what I was here, which is pulling these agreements out of litigation, is that you're going to end up with some type of unrepresentative sample where you have uh, LLCs that are disproportionately prone to litigation or maybe disproportionately large such that litigating these things is actually worthwhile. And there's certainly some of that, I think, at the end of the day in my, in my sample where I'm pulling the agreement from companies that are litigating uh, or that there's some dispute about the internal governance provisions. Uh, or a lot of the operating agreements that I got were attached to litigation, not that the company was actually directly involved in or not having to do with the internal governor's provisions, but instead it's something like what you were getting at, enforcing some contractual rights. Uh, so maybe it was a creditor who's trying to collect on the, uh, the debtor's interest in an LLC, and part of that would be, uh, part of that litigation would be the operating agreement attached as an exhibit, or uh, in some cases, the LLC had an investment interest in another company, and that other company engaged in some type of securities fraud, and uh, the LLC's operating agreement would be attached as an exhibit to, to that litigation. So a good number of cases where uh, I don't think we need to be quite as worried about the un, uh, unrepresentative sample that could result if I'm just focusing on LLCs that are litigating their own terms. I saw in your article you mentioned a concern you had with underrepresentation of small LLCs. I think your comment was along mm -hmm. the lines that the smaller LLCs are less prone to be involved in litigation uh, for financial or economic reasons. Uh, was that a concern and, and how did you account uh, deal with it? Yeah, so that is a concern and I, that's actually one of the, the concerns that motivated my study over the ones that have been done. Like when you're looking at just publicly traded LLCs or LLCs where publicly traded corporations are a member, the worry is that these are going to be uh, disproportionately large companies and not really show you how the smaller ones are behaving. So by looking at litigation where it's not always the money that's driving parties to litigate, like I'm sure as you've run across before, you can just have former co-owners in an LLC who now just hate each other's guts and are going to try and ruin the other one regardless of any financial returns that they might get. For every case, I mean, that's a, it's a horrible thing to see, but from my perspective, it's great when the parties aren't motivated by potential financial returns because then you'll get some of these pretty small companies uh, where maybe it doesn't make financial sense to litigate really anything related to an LLC because the part parties have invested only a few thousand dollars. But nevertheless, they're litigating these things and attaching the operating agreements uh, as part of that. Let's move beyond methodology and get into some substance here. The real thrust of the study that you undertook was to discover what about LLC agreements? So I wanted to see, first of all, just provide some evidence for what, what parties are doing, which I think has had some value in its own. Again, the, the discussion to date has largely focused on the theoretical advantages or disadvantages of something like the Delaware approach, which is pretty hands-off. It provides some default protections, but no real mandatory rules. Uh, so looking at that and then comparing it to what some other states like the the um, the Model Act or what California does where they have some more mandatory rules that are designed to make sure particularly more vulnerable minority owners have some protections that cannot be waived. I suspect 
most of our listeners understand that the nature of the LLC statutes consisting of a set of mostly default rules varying from state to state, some mandatory rules as well. But for those who may not be as learned on the subject, how would you describe the legislative scheme against which these LLC agreements operate? It's, it's always helpful, I think, to compare it to corporations. So corporation law requires that there's a board of directors, there's mandatory fiduciary duties that apply to all these companies, there's standing for derivative suits, there's some mandatory rules that parties, uh, investors in these companies or owners of these companies cannot get rid of even if they all agree that they want to do this. So LLCs and the, the statutory regime of particularly Delaware, but a bunch of uh, states that follow Delaware's approach, they provide really no mandatory protection for parties. So Delaware requires that there's this implied obligation of uh, good faith or of uh, yeah, good faith and fair dealing. Yeah, so the implied obligation of, of good faith and fair dealing applies to Delaware LLCs, but otherwise there's no required board of directors and the parties don't want fiduciary duties. Uh, they can get rid of them by stating in the operating agreement that, that they don't want these. And so Delaware has default protection. So there's still protections that apply if the parties don't say otherwise. So if an operating agreement doesn't say anything about fiduciary duties and you just say good faith, care, and loyalty will apply. But if the uh, the owners of an LLC in Delaware decide they don't want to have fiduciary duties apply, they can just say so. And that's uh, uh, the nature of a default rule. The The idea behind, by the way, Delaware's approach and uh, the other states that follow this commitment to contractual freedom is that, uh, in theory, we can get more efficient operating agreements if we have default protections but allow the parties to get rid of those protections when it makes sense to do so. And that's because any protection for investors, it can help investors, but it usually comes with some cost as well. You can think of something like the corporate opportunity doctrine, which helps minority investors of a company, but it can also constrain some desirable transactions from occurring. So by making something like the corporate opportunity doctrine a default for LLCs, says, hey, if you think you can protect yourself better through other means and you don't need this corporate opportunity doctrine, then go ahead and waive this protection if you don't want it. So that's the, the basis behind uh, the approach that states like Delaware take, where they're really about allowing the parties to, uh, trusting the parties to contract uh, for optimal terms. But the, uh, the Uniform Act and states that tend to follow that approach, there is less commitment to allowing the parties to contract for anything they want, and more of a desire to make sure that minority owners are protected, so what motivates uh, corporation law as well. Uh, so the, uh, the Uniform Act has mandatory fiduciary duties, generally gets make sure that parties have a certain baseline of protection that's mandatory that cannot be taken away even if the parties uh, try to do so. Your, your article lists one through five or six protections that you discuss. Let me, let me tick them off for our listeners. Authorizing competition or restrictions on competition. Waiving the corporate opportunity doctrine. Fiduciary duties, the elimination of fiduciary duties. Drag along rights. Judicial dissolution. I think those are the five or six that you mentioned. 
the last one, of course, is of greatest interest to this uh, speaker. What did, sure. you, what did your study find uh, as far as the elimination or watering down of those safeguards? So uh, I found, first of all, that there's a lot of variation occurring. It's hard to say. I can say what the average rates are, but I think that uh, one takeaway is that there's no kind of one direction that all the companies are going. There's a lot of variation in what companies decide to do. But with respect to the terms that that you just listed, uh, these are ways that the, so Delaware imposes by default prohibition against comp competing with the LLC if you're a manager of the company and uh, by default the corporate opportunity doctrine applies, fiduciary duties apply, drag along rights and parties have a right to seek judicial dissolution. But since these are default protections, the parties to the LLC can waive them if they decide to do so. So uh, for a couple of these, I'll say like the, for the corporate opportunity doctrine is 40% of the LLCs in Delaware were waiving the corporate opportunity doctrine. So they were uh, allowing parties to compete in lines of business similar to what the LLC does without requiring those parties to compensate the LLC for any damages that might occur. And fiduciary duties also, it's, uh, I looked at complete waivers of, of individual fiduciary duties, so the duty of loyalty, good faith, and care. Uh, but also exculpation of those duties uh, or agreements by the LLC to indemnify managers for violation of fiduciary duties. Uh, and those too, it's, it's, there was a lot of modification to these fiduciary duties going on. Duty of loyalty, uh, a little surprisingly to me, was the most common one to be modified. It was 64% of the Delaware companies uh, were doing something to the duty of loyalty. Duty of care, of course, popular too, but that was 45%. And uh, the duty of good faith is only 18% of the companies were, were somehow cutting back on the duty of good faith. Uh, we can face with the judicial dissolution. So the one that's uh, most interesting uh, to you and your website is 12% of the companies in Delaware were waiving the party's right to seek judicial dissolution. Surprisingly, in, in New York, there was some waiver going on as well, even though there's case law in New York that says that judicial dissolution is a mandatory rule and the parties can't get rid of it. So maybe if New York ever ever changes that law, the, the rule will apply to these New York companies that have already agreed to waive it. That was 8% of the New York companies were waiving uh, any owner's right to seek judicial dissolution, which, as you know, that's like the, the nuclear option, the right to seek judicial dissolution is what you fall back on when every, all the informal means of resolving conflicts are, have failed. So to, to waive those is uh, you waive your right to seek judicial dissolution, kind of your your last dish effort to salvage something out of this. That's parties probably sometimes they they say they're surprised when they see it there, but uh, that's a a big deal when it happens. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I'm aware of the Delaware case law allowing waiver of judicial dissolution. I, I haven't read any reports of cases like that, or or maybe even statutory provisions like that outside of Delaware, and as you correctly point out, the few New York cases that I've seen say as a matter of public policy that there can't be a waiver. I'm curious though, there are New York cases that do allow LLC agreements, just as with shareholder agreements, to provide that if one files for judicial dissolution, that will trigger an obligation to sell their interest, either at a formula price or a specified price 
did it, when you looked at LLC agreements on this particular question, did you treat those type provisions as a waiver? So I actually didn't see any of those in the New York companies. And uh, maybe if I go beyond the sample of 50, I'd run across more where that occurs. That's probably because there were, these waivers in general are relatively unusual to see them happen. For for Delaware, I saw somewhere the parties are just waiving, completely waiving their right to seek judicial dissolution. But others, I think, more in line of what, what you were mentioning, although kind of nasty where they'd say if you try to seek judicial dissolution, then uh, you forfeited your ownership stake. You're no longer a member of the LLC, uh, in which case, if, if that's enforceable, then you don't have standing to seek judicial dissolution. So I think getting to, at the end of the day, making sure that parties in those companies are not enforcing any judicial dissolution right. That sounds like a forfeiture provision. Yes, yep. Well, I haven't seen any of those here in New York, though I think there was one case uh, that I can recall where that provision came up and the, the court slapped it down pretty uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, I think, it, again, in New York, if it's motivated by public policy, then you should probably be getting mm -hmm. at the substance of what the parties are trying to do. Now, I, I think one of the lines of inquiry of your study was to determine whether there are compensating protections that are being added in LLC agreements to compensate for the elimination or watering down of other protections. Did I get that right? And if so, what did you find? That's right. So I was uh, looking, one, one prediction you might have if you think that parties are bargaining for optimal operating agreement contractual terms is that if you give up protections that would otherwise apply by default, then you're going to want to bargain for more optimal protections elsewhere. So we just talked about the ways that parties are giving up some protections. If you agree to, in Delaware, give up your right to seek judicial dissolution, then maybe you're going to want to make sure that, uh, hey, you're protected in, in some other manner that is a non-default way of being protected. And one example could be uh, that you require the company to give you periodic distributions, or maybe you want to limit the LLC's purpose. So you spell out in the operating agreement that the company is only able to pursue real estate investment uh, as opposed to the, the default there, which would just be any any valid business purpose is what the company can do. And so this is just one way of, and I should say it's only one way, there may be other ways that the efficiency bargaining story could play out. But the one that I was looking at in particular is was the question or the prediction that if parties are giving up protections that apply by default, they're going to want to compensate and seek uh, other better protections elsewhere. And the finding was that that's not uh, really occurring. So I was looking to see as certain protections are being given up, like a waiver of fiduciary duty, is that associated with a, firm, uh, a higher number of affirmative protections being adopted in their place? And the answer there was no. So for any individual protection that's being waived that would otherwise apply by default, there's no real systematic relationship between how aggressively default protections were cut back versus the non-default uh, protections that were affirmatively adopted in those places. It's really seen to be all over the place for the sample as a whole, as well as for a couple individual samples that I look at. Were you surprised by that finding? I was. And so if you're, if you are buying into the contractarian story where the parties are looking for and, and crafting optimal uh, agreements that will achieve the most efficient governance possible, 
then the one prediction might be that if the parties, again, if they're going to give up your right to seek judicial dissolution, then you're going to want to make sure that you're protected in these other ways. And I mentioned just uh, a minute or two ago that that's one prediction from the contractarian approach, but it's not the only way that you might see efficiency bargaining play out. And so this study doesn't say that, hey, there's no efficiency bargaining going on. It could be that maybe parties are negotiating for a different buy-in price for their investment. If you give up your right to seek judicial dissolution, then you'll pay less per share for your membership interest. But at least in terms of bargaining for specific contractual terms, it wasn't playing out in the way that the contractarian theory might predict. I noticed that um, among the strengthening protections that you discuss in the article, the first one you mentioned is amending the operating agreement. I guess the theory being that if you're giving up, as, an, as a non-control member, if you're giving up certain protections, you would bargain for a provision that requires your consent to any amendments. Is that the idea? That's right. So that's uh, one way that uh, you may want to see your interest being protected. You want to make sure that any adversely affected party, or you in particular, have the right to uh, veto any amendment that tries to take away rights you would otherwise have. I think the default rule, at least in New York, is that the agreement can permit amendment other than by unanimous consent, but there, but the statute carves out certain mandatory protections, for instance, changing one's interest in, in profit and loss. New York's pretty good default protection there for their members where any adversely affected member for th most things that matter to them, uh, you need the approval of anyone who's going to be uh, anyone is going to be harmed. Right. There was I, I, last fall. I wrote about a novel ruling here in New York, where the court interpreted a section of New York's LLC law as permitting the adoption of the initial LLC agreement without the consent of all the members. I see this all the time, where the company is formed and goes into business before the members, the owners, come to a written operating agreement. And lots of bad things can happen in that hiatus period. And when that happens, according to this court ruling, a majority of the members can adopt an effective, enforceable operating agreement even without the consent of a dissident member. Mm. I, I think everyone was surprised by the ruling, but it's on the books. And until an appellate court says otherwise, that appears to be a, a, a precedent-setting rule. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I think it's a general concern you have with, with setting uh, unanimous versus less than unanimous approval. Is uh, Unanimous approval can be pretty hard to get. It doesn't really matter how many owners are in the LLC, but presumably the more owners you have, the harder it is to get unanimous approval. But you can still just have some obstinate person who's holding out for some type of side payment to get them to agree to a benefit that actually makes the company as a whole better off. So, so that's why you may want less than unanimous agreement. But on the other hand, once you move away from unanimous agreement, say there's two owners, each have 49% ownership stake in the company, and you're that lone 2% member, something that just requires majority approval or even two-thirds approval, those two members can do whatever they want. I really amend the operating agreement to take away all the rights that you, the little 2% owner, would otherwise have. And so the protections that are in the agreement aren't really worth a lot to you in that case. Peter, I noticed throughout your article, you make a distinction between uh, sophisticated members and 
think you call them vulnerable or more vulnerable members. How, how do you draw that distinction between members and why was it important to your study? This distinction was based on, the, well, I should say, maybe what the, the overarching goal was. So the one worry people have with making the protections in an LLC merely default protections is that you're going to have some less sophisticated or more vulnerable owners who are giving up protections because they don't read an operating agreement or they don't hire a lawyer to read it for them, but just assuming that they're protected nonetheless. You can imagine when these people are buying into a company, if I'm some less than upstanding uh, majority owner or manager of a company, I may want to attract a bunch of these people, write the operating agreement in a way that paves a way for future opportunism by me down the road, and get these less sophisticated, more vulnerable owners to sign on to them. And so when I was doing the analysis, I wanted to distinguish between circumstances where I thought there were people more prone or owners more prone to this potential opportunism versus LLCs that had exclusively sophisticated people who might be bargaining for the optimal terms. And I distinguish this based on how much money people were investing in the company. The idea is that if you're not investing a lot of money, either you're not going to have the expertise to evaluate one of these operating agreements yourself, or you're not going to have enough money at risk to make it worthwhile to, to hire counsel versus in the ways of LLCs to do it for you. Uh, so that was a proxy that I chose for vulnerability or uh, sophistication, and it, it seemed to have pretty decent overlap with intuition of, of what you might expect when people are forming these agreements. Interesting. I, I My own experience dealing with LLCs that run into uh, trouble is that even very smart, sophisticated people, particularly of course, and, and some of them are even lawyers in business, but if they don't consult their own counsel, most of them are fairly oblivious to what they're signing when they sign an LLC agreement. There is an awful lot of trust involved. The, the preparation of the agreement is entrusted either to the, if there's a money member, the money member and the counsel chosen by the money member. I'm overgeneralizing, of course, but it is something that I experience very frequently. That's right, and uh, particularly there are a few cases I ran across here where you're reading about, uh, it seems like medical practices were maybe disproportionately prone to this type of thing where you have people, doctors, investing a lot of money in this, but allegedly never actually read the agreement until the dispute came up later on. So distinguishing based on money, it's not going to be perfect in every single case. But the idea was that more often than not, or maybe not more often than not, but people who are investing $500,000 or a million dollars, they'll more often hire a lawyer to represent them or have the knowledge themselves than someone who's investing only $20,000 in an LLC. It might not line up with every single case that you see, but hopefully more often it's going to be the case for the, the high-dollar investors. So, Peter, what conclusion did you reach as to the, whether the flexibility of LLC statutes and their policy of contractual freedom promote a more socially efficient, and I'm using that word because I, I think that's what you talk about in your article, a socially efficient form of business organization compared to traditional corporations and partnerships with mandatory duties of managers? Well, I think that it's it's certainly the case that the potential is still there for more efficient governance under LLCs just by the nature of their protections being defaults instead of mandatory protections. 
but in terms of what I found, it didn't really seem to be playing out that way. So when I was looking at companies that had the more vulnerable, perhaps less sophisticated minority owners, not only was there not really bargaining going on to adopt terms to protect these minority owners, but in fact these companies had significantly fewer affirmative protections being adopted that are designed to protect minority owners. And these are the companies where you would expect maybe you'd find significantly more minority owner protections. Uh, just in terms of a policy matter, who needs protection? It's the companies that have uh, these small minority members or owners buying into them. But in the sample that I was looking at, these companies actually had significantly fewer non-default protections being added in. So uh, that finding was, is somewhat troubling in terms of seeing LLCs operating for efficiency. Instead, that suggests maybe these companies uh, and the form might be used as a way to uh, lay the road for at least a contractual road for potential opportunism down the road. Now, of course, there's a caveat. So I talked about how uh, maybe parties are bargaining for price or not just exclusively for, for contractual terms. It's also the, the concern that maybe, although the, the contractual groundwork has been laid for opportunism, what we really care about is how often majority owners and managers are taking advantage of the contractual provisions to engage in opportunism. And those aren't questions that I can answer based on what I was what I, what I was looking at. But again, just looking at how parties are cutting back default protections, adding non-default protections, it's not really consistent with the prediction that I'm testing of is that how we would expect parties bargaining for optimal or efficient terms to behave. So Peter, if you, all other things being equal, if you were given a choice of being a minority member of an LLC in company A, or a minority shareholder in company B, company A and B are otherwise identical, which would you prefer? Ooh, that's tough based purely on, on just that information. I guess I would hope that I'd be able to read through the agreement and at least at, at this point have some of the expertise to evaluate what protections I had. But I, I guess I'm a, maybe one of those people who's a little too trusting of other individuals, so maybe I would, I would go for the LLC trust in my fellow uh, owners and investors out there and managers that they're not out there to try and expropriate any any gains from me. Of course, it could change depending on the industry that we're in. So if I was lucky enough to be a minority investor in an asset management company, then maybe I want to go for LLC to make sure we can get rid of that, uh, the corporate opportunity doctrine and have some efficiency going on there. It sounds like you may be a client of mine someday. <laughs> That could be the case when I when when uh, when the problems pop up and I then look to see what what rights I did and didn't have. I'll, I'll come no. right back to you, Peter, and make sure we solve this problem. Well, Peter, it's been a pleasure talking to you. To our listeners, uh, Peter's article again is called "How Do LLC Owners Contract Around Default Statutory Protections." It is a fascinating article. I highly recommend it to you. It's available currently on SSRN, correct, Peter? That's right. And it will be published soon, I hope, in the Journal of Corporation Law, which is a, is that a publication of the University of Iowa? Yes. Or, or the law school there or the university? Yep, yeah, the law school there. All right. Once again, Peter, thank you so much. My pleasure.
That was Peter Molt discussing his forthcoming article in the Journal of Corporation Law on how do LLC owners contract around default statutory protection. If you'd like to learn more on the subject, visit my New York Business Divorce blog. That's nybusinessdivorce.com, where I've posted an article describing Peter's research and findings with a link to Peter's article. In the next episode of the Business Divorce Roundtable, I'll be speaking with John Cunningham, practicing attorney and author of the leading treatise on drafting LLC operating agreements on the topic of how to deal with deadlocks in operating agreements of two-member LLCs with two equal members. Until then, this is Peter Mahler. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast manager.